Welcome in, everybody, to Please Stay Inside. It is great to see you once again. My name is Rob. Uh, today, we have a wonderful, wonderful guest, uh, Mr. Gabriel Hannans, the author of This is Parenting, Demystifying Parenthood. Uh, he is a child care professional who has worked with kids as a teacher, a behavioral technician in uh, Central Florida, uh, and also works as a tutor and parental consultant, as well as vocal trainer. Uh, he is also an online TikTok creator. You may know him as the as the indomitable black man, and he is a classically trained vocalist. Gabe, welcome, welcome on. It is great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So, of course, the first thing that I would love to be able to start with is talking about your book. Um, this is Parenting, Demystifying Parenthood. Um, I finished it over the weekend. It was wonderful, wonderful read. Uh, so tell everybody, I guess, a bit about the book. How would you best describe it? It is an overview of the principles of gentle parenting or authoritative parenting. I call it authoritative parenting, but some people know it as gentle parenting. That's really what it is in a nutshell. Okay, wonderful. And you, you really do a wonderful job of getting so many of the different foundational pieces in what is rel like a relatively short read. Um, you know, you, you cover like the different types of parenting. You cover what is like kind of the pros and the, and the, and the cons of each style. You talk, of course, about, um, about some of the punitive measures of parenting, why they are not so effective. Um, as well as generally how society has kind of changed its view of parenting in general. Um, and I know right now there's a lot of debate, I see it all the time on TikTok, between people about, you know, these different parenting styles. And some people say, well, I can't do gentle parenting for all of these reasons. And um, I, yeah, the, the debate continuously goes back and forth. And so when people are talking about kind of this, older style of parenting i guess we, we could call it in, in a sense but it of course it's still existing we talk about like authoritarian parenting the kind of like i am the adult you're the kid these are the dynamics you are going to listen to me and that's all there is to it so what is it about authoritarian parenting that you find doesn't really work Authoritarian parenting doesn't do what parenting is supposed to do. It, it's, it's quite the opposite. The goal of a parent is to teach a child skills necessary to be independent, highly functioning adults. Authoritarian parenting has the child in a position where they should already know something. That's not how life works. You can't tell a child something one time. You can't tell a human something one time and expect them to just get it. Children are impulsive. Children do not know. They haven't been here before. Telling them to just do something because I said do it isn't telling them how they should do it, isn't telling them what happens if they fail, um, if there is a place where they're going to come up short. It's not telling them anything. You're just barking orders. That's not going to help them. And so authoritarian parenting is, is not really parenting. It's not teaching. It's just being an authority. But what good is an authority if you're not benefiting the people that you're in authority of. Right. There's nothing there. It's, it's empty. It's just threats. It's just work. Right. Which makes a lot of sense. If we're kind of only doing the punishing, but we're not doing the teaching, then we don't kind of see any, any improvement going forward. And you talk about some of the detriments of this kind of punitive 
style of parenting where it is just all punishments. And this is something that the research backs very well. Um, I mean, neurological studies looking at how the brain changes as a result of some of the punitive styles of parenting, especially spanking. And then some of the... Um, some of the behavioral challenges that come out of it, um, that kids actually can become a lot more aggressive, that kids can even demonstrate up to like antisocial behaviors as a result of it. Um, and you discuss some, uh, some significant, uh, some significant historical figures who have had some issues with their upbringing related to this. So societally, why do you feel like we've resorted to this style of parenting for so long? <laughs> um, a lot of y'all are going to hate what I say, but it is a historical fact. A lot of it stems from colonialism, serfdom, um, white supremacy, this idea of European supremacy. It, it's just that. Authoritarianism in parenting did not exist in West, in Africa. It did not exist in Asia. It did not exist in the Americas. It is a uniquely European invention. You see that as far back as the beginning of Western civilization with the Spartans. They would get their children at age seven and send them to the Agogi, which if you want to beat your child and make them warriors, that's how you do it. If you want to raise some bloodthirsty warriors, that is how you do it. You get these children and you traumatize the hell out of them until they are capable of, um, of just doing it. That, that's literally what you do. You beat them, you, you raise them with this mentality of survival, and that's what you get. You get strong warrior-type children. But here in 2023, we don't necessarily need that. And it was further pushed by the, um, the, the Western church, this concept of you are sinful and you are disgusting and despicable, and we have to beat holiness into you. That concept was pushed, though that's not a concept that's pushed biblically. It, it, it's been misinterpretation, it's been survival. Those two things and, uh, and money have been the driving forces for why we have authoritarianism still so prevalent today. And, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, the idea of kind of like controlling rather than trying to teach a valuable lesson, you know, that it's more about submission than it is about... Um, providing any kind of a rubric for things. And you brought up also in your book how this extends far beyond just the parenting aspect, as, of course, many things like colonialism, historically, white supremacy uh, continues to affect society. And one of these areas that you brought up was the criminal justice system itself, that a lot of the way that we um, provide a rubric for society and we try to provide guidance for people is more so by kind of just putting people in a cell and, you know, various other punitive measures. So if, if it runs this deep in all these different areas, how culturally do we begin to, to shift that? And I understand it's a very big question, but um, how do we begin to change the mindset just on an on on individual-to-individual basis, I guess? It really just starts off with education and dealing with the trauma that we've been dealt in the black community, specifically in the black and brown communities from which I can, I can speak to experience. Our funerals are, we go to funerals to process trauma. And what that looks like is we'll sit around and laugh while we're eating our, our food at the repast, talking about how the person who is deceased whooped our butts. That's, 
that's what we do. I've been to several funerals where, oh, I remember when, you know, grandma such and such told my behind up because I was doing X, Y, and Z. Baby, that was abuse that you still haven't processed. And we all are sharing those stories of unprocessed trauma that's carried over for generations from slavery and Jim Crow. And it first starts out with us recognizing that our parents, though they used it, aren't necessarily bad people. They are just people who were raised this way, but we don't have to carry that on. It served its purpose back when we were slaves. It served its purpose back when we were being, you know, unalived in mass, you know, amounts. But now, because we're not in as much of a survival situation, we don't have to do that. We can move on to something that's more appropriate, like authoritative parenting, teaching our children why we shouldn't do things, teaching our children why we should do certain things, what it looks like if we can communicate effectively and establish boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's what it looks like. It looks like us healing from our trauma and teaching how we can move forward. Right. Uh, and, and there are several really wonderful things that you brought up within that that I would love to talk some more about. Um, but I guess just starting with the, with the generational trauma aspect of this, the whole, you know, my parents did this to me, my grandparents did this to them, you know, and so this is the way that I do it. And the one phrase that I hear time and time again, when people attempt to justify the, the things that they did, it, you know, when their kids come to them and they say that, yeah, this was very traumatizing for me. Like I know a lot of people, uh, a lot of millennials at this point are kind of coming to their parents and they're talking about this. And the phrase that is consistently used is like, I did the best that I could. How do we work with that? How do we validate that and then be able to move move forward with it? I saw a TikTok recently where that same concept was brought up and the creator was basically saying two things can be true at the same time. You can absolutely do the best you can and it also still not be good enough. Those two can live in the same level of reality. My parents have said, I did the best I could with what I had. You did. God bless you. It also wasn't good enough. You've caused a lot of trauma that I have to unpack now as an adult that has led to a lot of toxic behaviors over my life, some that are detrimental. Some can happen to people where they cannot recover from it because you did the best you could with what you had. Baby, we get it. But that wasn't enough. And especially now where we have enough understanding. We've been, for the past 50 plus years, we've had all this data to show that this is not something that should be done. But even past that, just your own humanity should tell you that that shouldn't have been done. Mm -hmm. You did the best you could, but it wasn't enough. And it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you didn't try. It's just that your try wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But also, it's not okay. You need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. If we want to move on from that, there has to be an acknowledgement of the mistakes. There has to be a penance for that mistake. There has to be a, I'm sorry, I thought I did as best as I could. How can we move on from here? Mm-hmm. That's the only way we can see growth and progress. Otherwise, it's going to continue to perpetuate the same cycles right. of brokenness. Right. Unnecessarily. Right. Right. And that dialectical understanding is so difficult for a lot of different, uh, for me, for a lot of people, 
um, you know, both with parenting as well as just with other things. Like one of my um, favorite dialectics within uh, DBT is that you are absolutely doing the best that you can with what you've got and that you are, you know, you're giving it your all. At the same time, you got to look for room for improvement. And you got to find ways of, uh, of continuing to grow as a human being. And so I, I love the idea of trying to approach it in, in that way. Um, and hopefully, you know, as we continue to move forward, people can understand that both of those can coexist. Um, and I think it's, an, it's important for us as, uh, as people who are trying to communicate this with our parents as well to, I guess, be aware of some of that. Um, the entire job is not just with us, it's also with our parents. But it, that I think the way that you put it is a wonderful way of communicating it as well. Um, within, uh, you also bring up within, uh, within the black community that there are stories that are told at funerals of, you know, this person whooping me and, and all, all these different things. And one of the things that you also bring up within the book is, uh, is community in general and how that's changed within parenting. And of course, historically within the black community, as a result of redlining, disenfranchisement, I mean, with the GI bills coming after World War II, et cetera, et cetera coming up all the way until this point where, you know, the idea of community is so fractured within the United States. I wonder how the breakdown of community in general can affect parenting within the U.S. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So what a lot of people don't realize is the systemic destruction of the family isn't the fault of the family as much as it is the fault of policies just like redlining. Let's take, for instance, Compton. Compton in the 60s and 70s was a very well-established community. It had a lot of, it was a suburb. It was a black suburb where you had doctors, you had factory workers, you had people who were making good money. It, could, it was a one household where the father could work the one, uh, the the wife could stay home and raise the kids, and it was a good family unit. There was there was safety, there was security, there were pensions, etc. And then with the war on drugs, which is a racist policy that was pushed forth, it it destroyed the black dynamic. You you literally have the government pushing um, narcotics. I don't want to say someone on TikTok, and get, you know. Uh, <laughs> Appreciate that catch. <laughs> You had narcotics being pushed in the inner city to these communities of people, and it was causing them to go get incarcerated at, at incredible rates. Then you move. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting too far ahead. You had corporations, you had businesses, factories that were in Compton, where the father could go work. He had security. Those companies moved out of Compton area. So those people who were getting to work every day had to either commute twice as far, three times as far to get to these same jobs where they had to find a job closer. That was not always easy, especially right after the Jim Crow South or after Jim Crow. So they eventually fell into poverty. Then this resource moves in where it's, you know, you can sell this tiny little vial of these rocks and make like 50 bucks. The fathers do the only thing that they know how to do, which is to make money for their family by selling these things. But now these people are either addicted or they're selling these addictive products. So these resources are going out. People are now going to jail. Families are being split up. It's a modern day slave trade, quite literally, as recently as the 80s. And these families are broken apart 
No longer do you have fathers in the home. No longer do you have mothers at home because the father is in jail, the mother is strung out, the children are being raised by whom? Then you see the formation of gangs where you see these older um, teenagers or men who didn't happen to go to prison now grooming these children to be street warriors. They don't know what's right and what's wrong. They don't have anybody to tell them any differently other than the people who are telling them, no, this is okay, go do this. They're taking the fall for these people. These kids are put in a survival situation where all they know is getting money, being promiscuous, fighting every day. A lot of them don't even think they're going to make it to, you know, 20, 30 years old. So it perpetuates that cycle. Before, you had authoritarian style, yes, but you also had a community of people who were supporting these children, making sure that they were, they were doing right. Even though there was, you know, spankings and everything like that, you still had people who were more focused on the welfare of the child. Then with the dissemination of the organizations like the Black Panther Party or the Rainbow Coalition, you now have these kids growing up with nobody at all. At least I would I would have preferred the authoritarian approach as opposed to the neglectful parent approach because now there's nobody there to raise them other than these pseudo parents that are these gang leaders. Mm. And because those kids are now grown up with this survival mentality and the only parenting they knew was authoritative or authoritarian, they have this really warped, bastardized, grotesque version of what a parent should be that's rooted in being a hyper masculine or hyper um, feminine and you have to survive. And so all of the parenting in the inner city is still rooted in that survival mentality. And that community is separated. The only time the community comes together is when there's a trauma, like what we saw with the, the protests. That's about it. So the parenting, especially as a community, it, it, it doesn't exist. And not in the, the, the manner it did before. You still have some old heads that'll, you know, try to correct a, a, a young blood. Like, hey, look, young man, like, don't do that. We gotta come over here, come, come do this. But not to the extent that it was in my mom's lifetime, in my in my dad's lifetime, when you walk down the street and you're acting crazy, the adults are going to come and hem you up. They're going to put you in line. Mm -hmm. Now it's, you better not say that to me, old man. Mm -hmm. Because there's nobody there to explain anything to them. So that's pretty much, that's how I answer your question. That's mm -hmm. a phenomenal answer. Um, and one of the things that you bring up within just how how communities have been so, so affected, um, especially the way, as you brought up, the war on drugs has really affected uh, the black community and locking up so many black men who are now no longer available to be there for, for kids. And it, it raises the rate of single motherhood and which I have to imagine must make parenting far more difficult. And so when you have that in combination with the already, um, the already existing uh, like authoritarian parenting style, how does that, how does that play into things? The, the lack of another person to help out, lack of a community to help out, and then, you know, now I have this kid. Oh, it's, it's hell. My mom raised me and my sister by herself. Mm. Um, my dad was a cop, but he lived in Georgia. My mama moved me and my sister down here, and it was, it was hell. If it wasn't for my grandparents also being there, it would have been even worse. There is, it, it strips people 
of so much because you're you my mom had to work i was not an easy child i had special needs i'm adhd like a mug but i'm also pretty defiant if i don't want to do something or I, I feel like it's unjust i'm gonna say something about it so my mom had two hard-headed children that were smarter than they should have been at this age wreaking havoc at different schools i'm being bullied on one end getting into fights my sister's arguing with teachers on the other side um I need help with school and everything like that. And my mom is also a teacher and she can't just leave her job to come see about me. My sister luckily was going to the same school my mom was working at. So she was fine on that end. But growing through all of those, those changes, especially me, specifically me, that was hell on her. My mom was very stressed. There were health concerns that came about as being a parent who's taking care of two households. Of course, there had to be an authoritarian presence she often said this is an authoritarian dictatorship i am what i say is law but it had to be that way because gentle parenting still is and somebody said it on here and it got she got a lot of flat for it but it is true gentle parenting is a form of privileged parenting mm -hmm. my mom could not afford literally to take time off to come up to the school to correct me because she had to make sure that she was making the money to take care of me and my sister and my grandparents at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it, she, because she had a community, it was easier. Mm -hmm. But there are people who do not have a community, who are raising children with special needs, who are having a hard time. And it causes health concerns. It causes behavior to act out because the only thought you have to go back to the survival mentality of authoritarian parenting. And authoritarian parenting is survival parenting. I'm call it what it is. When you survive, you're authoritarian. When you're thriving or trying to thrive, you move more into authoritative. Mm -hmm. But that isn't always affordable to a lot of parents. I, I love the way that you put it as being more of like survival parenting, which I think is such a good reframe for being able to talk to our parents about this kind of thing. Um, you know, that is, is a wonderful way of putting it. So I, I wonder, have, have you and mom talked about, you know, how things were growing up you know, now, that, now that you're older? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've had a few conversations um, she's seen my TikTok. She's on my TikTok. Okay. Um, she said she gets embarrassed when I talk about the stuff happening uh, as we grew up. Mm -hmm. One thing about my mom, my mom was more authoritative than my father. My dad was ex-Marine, like I've said many times. He served in Vietnam. He was on the police force in Atlanta and the worst part of Atlanta. So he's seen some things and he has a lot of trauma. And so he was very authoritarian. My mom was more authoritative because she was also a special education teacher, mm -hmm. like me, ironically. But even in that, I let her know, like, no, there were some things that you've done that have really messed me up. There are things that my dad did that messed me up even more. Combined, I have a lot of stuff I got to work through because I'm so traumatized by it. And I didn't even realize until I was a grown man. I was like, where are these habits coming from? Where are these behaviors coming from? Oh, from when I was a child. I can't cry now as an adult because when I was a kid, I was told by every adult, shut up before I give you a reason to cry. Mm -hmm. which led to me suppressing my tears to where now as an adult, the last time I cried was when my friend got unalived. Wow. Apart from that, do not cry. Right. And when we sit down and, and, and talk about it, she apologizes. She's like, I did everything I knew to do. And my mom is old school. My mom was born um, in the 50s. And so there's you are a black woman in the south in the 50s right. you have to be raised with that survival mentality mm -hmm. 
get it. My dad, same thing. He was born in the 40s. He lived in Detroit, and then he moved uh, to Atlanta. He was raised in that same kind of mentality. This is what they knew. My father, he's not going to ever apologize for it. I've kind of given up on that. My mom, she is very open with, I'm sorry, I did what I could. If I made a mistake, I apologize for it. She's, she's generally quick to say it. But then there are some things that she's not too quick to say it. And I still, it's a point of contention that really, you know, hits. But at least I know that she she tried. Mm-hmm. My dad, he did. Yeah, yeah. And, and she's open to the conversation, which I feel like is such a big part of it all. Yes, quite. And I had to, I had to do a radical acceptance of this is who they are. Yeah. This is what they've been through. And I understand why they've been through. It doesn't excuse it by any means necessary, but at least I can forgive to the point where I understand and accept the fact that this is who you are. I don't agree with who you are, but this is who you are. And I still love you in your mess, but I establish boundaries that say, I'm not going to allow you to do this to me again. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And it, it's... It's it's interesting. There's some parallels, I think, in the way that that parenting worked for for myself as well. That like, my my father was very authoritarian, um, and my mom was very authoritative. And when dad up and dipped, it's again just me and my sister, and she's trying to raise both of us. And she later had remarried a man who was far worse than my father. Um, and for us that kind of conversation has been very difficult. And it's one that I've found very difficult to have with her of talking not so much that about that, like for, for her, it was more of like the role of like, you didn't step in, you know, you didn't stop the things that he was doing. And for him, I have just felt like, I don't know how to talk to him about it, you know? And that's been a point in my mental health that I've been trying to resolve for a little while. And I had a therapist recommend exactly what you're talking about. Radical acceptance of just like, maybe you can't talk to him. Maybe this is just, you got to just accept that this has happened. And so I, I wonder how do we, from your perspective, how do we begin to approach that if we feel like we can't have that conversation? That's a good question. Um, with my dad, anytime I try to say anything, it's dismissed. Mm or it leads to an argument where I get so emotionally charged and exhausted. And I hate it feeling like that. I had to, I had to really assess, is it worth the damage? Mm. Is, is the healing that I want going to, is it contingent truly on him saying, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me, Gabe, are you, are you willing to accept the fact that you may never get an I'm sorry from your dad? And I was like, in the moment, I couldn't really answer it. But now I'm like, yeah, if I don't get it, I don't get it. I'm not, I'm not going to beat myself to death, holding on to the hope that he somehow say, son, I'm sorry for all the stuff I did to you. I'm not, I'm not going to hold on to that because that's going to just hold me back from getting the release that I'm looking for. Do I still have times where I wish that my dad say something like, I'm proud of you, or I'm sorry I did this, or something. Of course, but I also know that based on the relationship we have now, with the boundaries I have in place, 
I'm okay going for just like this. Mm-hmm. And I use that as a learning opportunity to not push this on my potential children, where I'm, I'm not going to allow that right. to stop me from being the person I'm supposed to be for my children. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it really just has to get to the point of, are you going to let somebody hold you back from getting what you're supposed to get? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's easier said than done. And it really is a mind over matter. It, it's, it's a, I, I can sit here and be upset and wallow in this. And you have every right to. Oh yeah. Or am I going to say, F this, I'm not going to let this steal my joy. Get up and say, I don't need your approval. I don't need your your acceptance. I'm going to keep doing me. Right. 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 Yeah, it it you've you've honestly given me a lot to think about, I think. Um yeah, some things some things to consider for sure. Um I know you mentioned the idea of, you know, not passing this on to your kids. And, you know, I know that for for myself, it's it's been a concern that, you know, me and my girlfriend have talked about of just like, because she's had similar-ish experiences with her, with the, with the style that, you know, her, her parents have had. Um, I won't go too much into her stuff. But, um, you know, we, we've had that conversation of like, we got to do some work before we get there. And so... For yourself, what do you feel like that work needs to look like for people in order to get to that point where they feel like they could be confident that, okay, I don't think I'm going to pass this kind of thing on? Mm, I think it's different for everybody, but generally it's it's more indicative of your behavior and mindset behind it. Mm. A lot of parents get triggered by their kids, but they're getting triggered by the things that their parents would get triggered by. Mm-hmm. When you can be around your child or any child and not be triggered to the point of wanting to do the same things that your parents did. Mm -hmm. Now you're at a place where you can move forward. You're at a place where your children, you're not going to pass that down to your children. I should say more specifically, rather than moving forward more specifically, you're, you're at a place where you're not going to pass that on, or it's not likely you're going to pass it on. Mm -hmm. If you can look at, the way you were raised and say, that was, that was abusive. I probably shouldn't have gone through that. Or that also probably shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's right. You're at that place where now you start to see, you can build on what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not still rooted in your foundation has shifted. I'll say that your foundation is shifted because you're not thinking of the same things your parents did. Mm-hmm. You're not being triggered by the same things your parents were triggered by, and you're able to see a different way to do things. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it's something that um I know like for myself like with with my PTSD and everything, there's come with it a lot of, and something that I feel like happens with a lot of men is that my emotional expression has consistently kind of favored the angry side of things. That when I get anxious, I get very angry, which is the same thing my father did. It's the same thing that my stepfather did. And I, it wasn't until I started doing that some, some of that self-discovery that I realized, like, yeah, people not doing the dishes and you flipping out is not a, you were right, and this is a justifiable reason for you to act this way. It was a, this is residue of the past. This is you 
carrying on, like you said, exactly the way that my parents would have done things. Absolutely. Um, an example of that, even with me and my dog, my puppy does things that annoys, mm. oh my God, it triggers the heck out of me, especially when he barks yes. like he's entitled to something. Mm -hmm. He talks back. He's a husky. He talks. He, oh, yeah. That's what he does. But my my triggered mind is like, boy, if you don't shut up, I'll push you across your lips. Mm. I throw my dog all the time, but usually I, I can't because he's so cute and he just looks at me. But I'm like, shut up, I'll punch him in your neck. Or, you know, something something you know like that. I don't because mm -hmm. he's just so cute. Yeah. But it's that triggering that still happens. Mm -hmm. And because I know that's there, I know that that's an area of my life that still hasn't right. been completely healed. Mm-hmm. Even my students, one of my students is on my live right now. I tell my students often, I'd be like, hey, shut up. Mm -hmm. And that's still an area. Now, of course, I do it as a joke, but that's an area for a lot of people where that's still not healed. Right. And so it's once you get to that point, that's that's where the development really starts to go. That's that's where you really start to notice the healing actually taking place. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's funny that you bring up the um the dog part of things because i've experienced similarly i gotta, I gotta get it here um but i've experienced a similar thing with my dog and honestly my dog has been a wonderful chance for me to practice all of this um because with a dog you know you can't say mean things to a dog and them understand what you're talking about you know and so it's like you know if i if I'm getting angry because of my dog and I'm losing my marbles because of my dog, you know, all I can really do is try to start being patient or I'm just going to be mad at myself and it's not going to go anywhere. Um, and we had the uh, awesome dog handling dude on last week and he was talking a bit about, about all this. Um, so bringing things to the model of how we want things to look because we've talked for, for for a little while about you know how we don't want things to look and you know about um authoritarian parenting so with gentle parenting with authoritative parenting you described it as like um you know we, we provide a rubric we provide lessons we don't just discipline we provide some real learning opportunities so what about that do you feel like has been so unfavorable for everyone? I'm on the phone. Can you ask that question again? Absolutely, absolutely. So you, you describe gentle parenting um, and it sounds very favorable. What about it do you feel like people are misunderstanding or are getting kind of hung up on? People's default is authoritarian parenting. That's their natural default. Beat your kids, yell at them, force them to get in line. They can't conceptualize the idea of doing something different. So anything that doesn't look like you hitting your kids is automatically seen as permissive. And they see that permissiveness as weakness. And now permissive parents can be quote unquote weak, but authoritative parenting is not weak at all. It actually requires more strength because you have to have more patience. You have to have more restraint. You have to have a creative mind to figure out how to, um, how to get to the mind of a child and work with them from that level. You can't, you can't just go in and be like, do this or we're not going to do that. There is a specific way that you have to learn each child. You have to 
have the time to build a relationship with your child, to understand your child, to know what they can think about, what level they are of cognition in order to give them directives based on their their cognitive level, you know what I'm saying? Like their skill set. You can't just jump in and just tell them to do stuff. So because a lot of parents don't want to do that because they don't have the privileged time to do that, the, they don't want to invest the hard work into doing that, they're going to revert automatically to the survival, which is authoritarian. Mm -hmm. That authoritarian parenting looks like what they, the opposite of authoritarian looks like the permissiveness. They can't, there is either extreme. It's never the middle ground. It's just the either or. Right. And, and in line with, I guess, the, um, trying to better, one, one of the big things, you know, we, we talk a lot, I think when we talk about parenting, we talk a lot about how do the parents respond to this. But one of the things that your book covers and one of the things that you mentioned is trying to understand why is the kid doing this in the first place. Um, and, you know, when we talk about the, the, the privilege aspect of this as well, you know, we, we talk about, um, or I guess you, you, you talked about how there is a, on a societal level, you know, we can understand poverty is like, and, and, and stealing as being like a state of lacking and that's why people are doing things like that um when it comes to working with kids you described a few different reasons why kids do the things that they do you talked about self self-stimulation um escape attention intangibles um, so I'm wondering if you can, I guess, talk a bit about all of those and also mention, I guess, which one gets misunderstood or missed the most often. Okay, so let's start off. It's SEAT. These are functions of behavior. Yeah, the acronym that we use is SEAT. So the first one is stimulation, self-stimulatory. A lot of that can look like tapping your fingers or something like that. It looks like, especially with children on the spectrum, it can look like them um, stimming, what we, what we call stimming. So it can be ticks, it can be um, doing something, humming, anything that's providing them uh, a boost of dopamine, just doing it within themselves. Um, for me, I have to fidget with something. Yeah. And even when I'm talking with you, I'm fidgeting with my ring. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. you know, looking for things to touch mm -hmm. because that gives me stimulation. Um, a lot of kids need that, but we also have a lot of people who try to suppress that. Mm -hmm. That is not, that's not going to do anything. Right. Self-stimulatory actions generally are pretty harmless. Um, there are some cases in which it can get, you know, kind of out of control, but generally they're, they're harmless. Right. And that's a big then you have that I've noticed, like the quiet hands, quiet feet type quiet deal. Yeah, I tell kids if they're tapping on the table, hey, tap on something softly. Can you tap on your thighs? I know you're going to tap. You want to tap. I don't necessarily want to suppress you, but the sound can be annoying to other kids. Find something quieter to do. Mm -hmm. That's fine. It's not uncommon to see kids with fidget objects. We love those fidget objects oh, yeah. because they're keeping your hands busy and they're keeping you quiet. And I think that's why a lot of kids use their phones, but nobody want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, because you're fidgeting with something. A lot of kids have anxiety, and when they're not doing anything or they're around a lot of people, they're going to immediately whip out their phone and start doing stuff on it. That's kind of what I do. Hmm. Like e that. is escape. Mm -hmm. Escape or when kids elope. So escape, elope, kind of same thing. They, it can look like um, I have some students who will just raise their hand and be like, can I use the restroom? Now, I don't want to withhold a child from going to the restroom. However, I know that there are certain students who will go to the restroom for 45 minutes. Mm 
-hmm. and only come back to get their book bag because I know they're skipping mm -hmm. because the work is too hard. And so the manifestation of that frustration is I want to go take a walk and use the restroom. I have no problem with kids wanting to go use the restroom. However, like if you need a break, tell me you need a break. Don't, don't just skip. But a lot of kids do that. The, the, the root of that is let's amend our work so that it's either more engaging or it's less challenging. Mm. Or in a certain case, it's more challenging if the kids find it too easy and they don't feel like doing it. There's a way around it. The next one is uh, access to tangibles. Well, attention. Let's do attention. Attention is just that attention. Um, like my puppy. My puppy will walk up and he will shove his nose in between my arms and look up at me because he wants my attention. His behavior will look like if I'm in my room with the door closed too long, he will poop on my love seat because he wants my attention. And this is how he manifests that attention. It looks like kids getting in trouble purposefully because if their parents can acknowledge them when they get in trouble, at least they got some attention. It looks like children cutting themselves because sometimes they're looking for attention. And it's not like, hey, I'm doing this so you can give me attention. It's them cutting themselves. You notice it. And now they have attention for it. Some of these behaviors can be conscious or subconscious. It looks like many different behaviors. But a lot of them are rooted in I want attention. Kids calling out in class, um, children using cuss words. All of those are attention-seeking behaviors. Um, and the way you get around it is either you withhold attention or you give them attention or you teach them how to ask for attention appropriately. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you have T, which is tangibles or access to tangibles. That can be your cell phones. That can be your laptops. That can be um, games. That can be going outside. That can be having access to anything that they can physically touch that they can get dopamine from. Um, and that also looks similar to attention. You can either withhold that tangible or you can give them that tangible. Both is fine. I prefer kids to earn those tangibles. Those all work. But that's those are the four functions of behavior. There's more functions, but those are the main ones. Yeah. You, you brought up, um, I think you just posted this video yesterday. I, I loved it so much. You were talking about... Um, uh, I think somebody had made a video talking about taking the phone from their kid um, because they were getting bad grades. And, or I think somebody had asked you the question about it. It was one of the two. And you talked about utilizing that as an opportunity, not so much as like, I am going to take the phone from you because you're getting bad grades, but more so if you make effort towards your grades, you will earn the phone time. Um, and, and I, I feel like as a reframe, that's so amazing. And so are there other ways that that can be utilized for things outside of the, outside the tangible, which I guess that's an example of that one. Oh, absolutely. You can use it. If, if we look at the things people want as like a currency, I don't want to say use it as a currency system all the time, but I just, just for the concept, sure. you can either give or withhold. If they're, say for instance, your child doesn't want a tangible and they want access to just spending time with you, you can absolutely do that. Hey, I want to spend time with you. In order to do that, let's work on your homework together. How about that? Or let's read together. If you can read this page, I'll read this page. They're getting that attention from you. You're getting the skill that you want to see. Right. That's simple. It's really just reframing. You have to be so creative with parenting. It, it's, it, and, and teaching in general, you have to be able to see what they need and then meet that need 
in a creative way, in a way that you can both get what you want. And there's a way to do it regardless of who you are. Yeah. So it can work with attention. It can work. Self-stimulatory. I don't, I don't know. I don't. It's a tough one. I don't know. Like yeah. I would say just let them do it. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, stimming yeah. is just a thing that people do as much as they do yeah. breathing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I get dopamine boost from breathing. I promise. Oh, <laughs> the yeah. fact that I'm not dead. Oh, I love that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It makes me happy. Um, so, but yeah, that's what I say about that. So, yeah. So, and uh, again, you know, we can, we can imagine how a lot of this again is, is a privilege and one of the areas where a lot of this i think comes in too is within the school which is you, know, you work within the schools as well um and so i wonder i wonder too if there's a if there's a uh, a tendency for authoritarianism in the classroom as well um in, in any kind of way oh god oh yes I can't tell you. Um, the last school I went to, I was an, an intern. I was so depressed. I was drinking literally every day because the school was just so, so horrible. And when you're in your senior internship, there's a great chance that you're going to be hired at that school. And so listening to the teachers mistreat the students, forcing their will on these kids, yelling at these kids, which I don't understand. I yell at kids, but it's usually because they're loud. I'm not yelling at them because I'm trying to force them to do something. I'm just like, hey, shut up. Mm. They're yelling at these kids because they're not doing what they're saying. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't make sense. There's the punitive punishments that have no effect. How are you gonna sit here and suspend a kid for skipping. Mm -hmm. They already don't want to be there. What is it doing? That's not, that's not, you're creating a paper trail, but a paper trail to do what? Kick them out of school. Right. So you're, you're not doing the thing that they need to do in the first place. Like it's, it's not beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so it still persists because the, the point of school was initially to create workers and not, sir, you're hurting my arm. <laughs> Excuse me. And so I'm for okay. um, But yeah, you, so you, you were talking about, I guess, what that experience was like. So, so that the experience being in this school and seeing a lot of the um, kind of the kind authoritarianism of measures that were being, yes, yes, uh, that was being, yes, really, I mean, seems like it hits you very, very hard. Yes. Um, drinking every day because I was tired of seeing how poorly they treated the students and there was nothing I could really do about it. And this was, this was common practice. It was not uncommon for the teachers to be like, oh, you got to have a short leash on them and mm -hmm. they're crazy and you got to do all this. And I'm like, no, they're just kids. Right. They're just kids. They don't know any better because you haven't taught them any better. Right. You're, and honestly, how I feel about cell phones, I, I don't like the fact that kids are on them all the time, but I'm also kind of the mindset, it's a non-issue if they're using cell phones for research purposes. Mm. It's a non-issue because we all use our cell phones throughout the day. Right. There, our, 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 our mindset with teaching in a, in a modern American education has always been rote memorization, Victorian style teaching. I'm here to teach you how to be a worker, that's it. 
I'm teaching you how to do just enough to get a job to maintain that work until you, you, you know, are unalive until right. you pass on to the next plane. That's literally been it. Right. There's never been a thought of what if we teach you how to create? What if we teach you to think beyond if you always if you teach a child the how, they'll always have a job. If you teach them the why, they'll be a boss. We don't want to teach them the why. We want to teach them the how. And that how has to come through authoritarianism, and it's a suppression of any type of why questioning. Of course, we'll say, oh, we, we do Bloom's taxonomy. There is that suppression. There is that authoritarianism. There's that punitive measure. There's that school-to-prison pipeline that we're going to teach you about. That's all exists. Right. It's one of the issues I've had with school resource officers for a while, um, that it just... It is a further example of what you're talking about, of just we are going to control the kids. The kids are going to do exactly what we need them to do. We're going to create that paper trail where you're not going to figure out why they're doing that. And the, the school to prison pipeline like you're talking about. Um, yeah, it's it's been a very big issue. And I'm happy that we're at least having the conversation about how we're doing things um, and beginning to move away from the, the, the way that things have, have been looking. Um so one of the uh, one of the last things I wanted to talk to you about, it's, I guess, a little bit removed from parenting and everything like that, but it's I really want to tap your knowledge of kids, especially young men, um, because one of the things that, as I'm sure you are aware of, has been really on the rise lately, it's always been present um, through other forms of toxic masculinity, but have been some of the influencers whose names I will not mention, but we all know who we're talking about, who really feed on the insecurities of young men um, to get them to have this like alpha male type of mentality. And like, you know, regardless of the things that they have said, regardless of the things that they have done. And it seems to me, because I've worked with so many young men um, and so many look up to these kinds of figures. And I wonder how your perception has been of that whole issue. It's the most disgustingly sad thing I've ever had the misfortune to see. And that's a sigh of exasperation, my God. I know so many young people that are gung-ho on this concept of alpha male mentality, mm -hmm. but what all of them have in common, every single one, is there some sort of abuse or there's some sort of fatherlessness in almost every single case and and abuse more more geared towards neglect there is it's, it's the same kind of mentality that leads people to join um gangs mm -hmm. um police officers and the military i said it i said what i said i said what i said it's a form of grooming it's where you take people his message hits with the same type of demographic. It's people who feel powerless, yep. who feel like they don't have any real intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to cling onto anything that's gonna sound good in their ears, which is value and identity. Mm -hmm. They're all young men around the ages of like, like adolescence to early adulthood, maybe like 35 at the most. There are all of these men who, for whatever reason, have not developed a good personality or personality discernible from anybody else's. Mm -hmm. And so 
the only things they want out of life is to be with women, mm -hmm. a bunch of women, to be strong and to be liked by everybody. That's that's really it. Mm. And all of it comes from the fact that they don't understand who they are. They don't they don't have a personality that differs. That's just what they want. That's what they're told they want. That's what they see on TV and think, oh, that's what I need. I, I need to be an alpha. What if you just can be you? Right. What if you're not like the alpha mentality doesn't even exist in the animal kingdom or here? Like. Mm -hmm. Yes, everybody's fighting for dominance, but it still is also just indicative of a survival mentality. We're human. We don't have to survive like that anymore. It's 2023. Mm -hmm. You can live a perfectly healthy, normal life, but that's not, they're stuck in survival mentality. They're stuck in survival mode. I have to be the best. I was bullied as a kid, so I want to be the buffest person as an adult. Right. Oh, I was victimized by somebody. I want to be strong and never be victimized again, so I'm going to be hyper-masculine, um, hyper-aggressive, to to make sure nobody messes with me mm -hmm. i tell people all the time look you can be buff as all you want but <laughs> don't run up on here and get you know <laughs> unalive by a skinny dude right. right what 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 benefit is that of you how, how do you feel when you go home you're still sad at night you're still angry right. i have a friend right now he buys into that mentality so much and he's still just as depressed still just as anxious one of the biggest one of the biggest things i see on people because i'm i'm hyper observant one of the things I notice about people with a lot of anxiety is that they bite the skin around their fingernails. Mm. I can look at somebody and tell who's anxious and who has depression just on something small like that. Mm. But you're an alpha male. What, what benefit is that giving you? You get upset and ready to, you know, take somebody out because they've rejected you. You're quick to call a woman out of her name because she sees through your facade. She sees that you're still a little boy inside. Mm. So people like people that will not be named are still little boys. Mm -hmm. They're little boys trying to be the big kid on the playground right. because they weren't the big kid on the playground when they were kids. Right. That's how I feel about it. I'm sorry. I want to rant. No, no uh, you, I, I did not hear one lie. So I, I, I appreciate that. And it, it really does seem like it, it's almost like a cultural multi multi-level marketing scheme of like, if you follow my guidance and then you recruit more people to this kind of mentality, you know, you will be the alpha, you will be on top. And they, they promise, like you said, a, a lot of the same things, um, you know, that there's wealth involved in this, there are women involved in this, all these kinds of things. And so how, where can we find better role models? How can we provide better role models for these kids? Because they are so impressionable. And this kind of stuff with the rise of, you know, TikTok, Twitter, everything like that, it is so easily accessible. Accessible. You have to, isn't this not going to be on TikTok? It's not going to be on any social media platform. It's going to be with people in their immediate lives mm -hmm. because I make more of an impact to the children that I meet daily. Like, matter of fact, one of my students who's on here, mm -hmm. we have lunch together. It's, it's not enough for me to just be like, hey, don't do this one time a day. It's, I have to. I sit down and eat with you. I'm, I'm imparting information. I'm building relationship. I'm secure in myself, regardless of what anybody, I am secure in who I am, mm. period. I'm being that model to these kids. Yeah. I'm not, people can talk about me. What? The, the kids specifically, conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. They'll say somebody was talking about me. Why do you care? Mm. Who are they? Do they sign your checks? 
No. Did they pay your bills? No. Did they get you that game system? No. Did they get you them Jordans? No. So why do you care about what they say about you? Mm. In, in a year, two years, 15 minutes, what they said is going to be completely irrelevant. Why are you worried? Mm-hmm. But then you have some people who will speak to these kids. They don't let nobody talk about you. Mm-hmm. They talk about you. They behind. Why? What are you benefiting? Mm-hmm. What? Where's the benefit going to lie? You being so secure in yourself and not worrying about what people say or you fighting somebody and then going down a life where either you get your behind beat, unalive, or put in jail. Wh- which one has the better cost risk analysis? You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. You're not going to find it on on social media. I try to be one on social media, but you're not going to have one. You need somebody who's going to build a relationship with you. You're going to have to find somebody that's... There has to be men and women who are secure in who they are that can go out and impart that wisdom to other children. That's the, that's the only way. Right. It has to be interpersonal. There has to be a relationship built. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it seems like just based on you know, being able to watch what you do on TikTok, hearing the way that you talk and, and hearing just the genuine passion that you have for really wanting to see the well-being of kids. Um, you know, I, I am happy that these kids have somebody like you that they can that they can look up to, that they can go to, to talk to. Um, and I, yeah, I, I appreciate so much everything that you do. And also for you coming on here to, to talk about everything. Um, so last thing to ask about, of course, is for you to plug what you're doing. You know, talk about your, your TikTok page a bit, talk about your book, let everyone know well, what you got out there. Well, I have my book, This Is Parenting. As I said about in the earlier part of this segment, I also have a YouTube, I have my TikTok. Both of them are under the underscore indomitable underscore black man. I have an Instagram, which is the underscore giant underscore Gabe. That's really what I'm doing. I'm working on a second book. I am, Wow. that's, that's, pretty, much, that's pretty much it. Wonderful. Well, I, I'm sure you'll let us all know when the second one is out. So uh, I'm excited for it. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. It's going to be kind of different than the first, but along the same vein. Okay. Looking forward to it. All right. Gabriel Hannans, appreciate you so much for coming on. Um, wish you the best uh, in your work with these kids. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are benefiting from what you do. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. You are most, most welcome. I enjoyed coming on here and speaking with you.